Amen. Good morning. It is uh, so good to be here with you this morning. Would you please take your Bible and open with me to the Old Testament book of Ruth, chapter 1. Thank you so much uh, for the warm welcome that you have given to Stacy and I here this morning. Uh, it is really, really good to be here with you today. Uh, I'm very grateful to Pastor Ian and to your elders for the invitation to come and open God's Word with you. And I consider that a great honor in light of the fact that God has gifted your senior pastor in a very special way to communicate his word. And so uh, I do not take this opportunity lightly. Uh, we love Pastor Ian and Sarah, and in many ways, uh, Stacy and I still feel like we're kind of getting to know them, uh, but we feel that we know them well enough to be deeply thankful for them. And uh, it's clear to us, both from a distance, but also being here with you this morning, uh, how much you love them as well. And so, can I just encourage you, when they get back from their sabbatical later this summer, uh, just very gently, very graciously, just remind them how thankful to the Lord you are for them. And uh, I trust and hope and pray that will be a great encouragement to them. It is great to be here with you today. I'd like to take you through a story this morning in the Old Testament that we don't normally visit very often. Uh, it's a story that, um, though many of us may never experience the same elements in it, we all at one time or another experience the same emotion of it. It's a story that begins with tragedy and it ends with triumph. It's a story that begins uh, with a family who is desperate and they are trying to make ends meet. It's a story of a woman who has experienced great uncertainty and deep suffering within her life that makes her extremely bitter. It's the story of two daughters-in-law who, even in the midst of their own suffering, are faced with life-changing decisions and they both choose to go separate ways. It's the story of a man who does everything within his power to redeem a situation that has gone very bad. In the end, the Old Testament book of Ruth is really a wonderful story of redemption. And as one pastor has put it, because that is because the book of Ruth is not just the story of Ruth's redemption, it's the story of our redemption too. And it's not just the story of Ruth's redeemer, it's the story of our redeemer as well. And so today we can see from this book four realities of the redeemer, four realities of who the redeemer is and what the redeemer does, and then from those four realities flow three responses from the redeemed. So four realities of the Redeemer and then three responses from the redeemed. But before we get into God's word together this morning, let's pray. Father, again, we are so thankful for this opportunity to be here right now, gathered together around your word. Lord, I thank you for the common bond that we share now in this moment in Jesus Christ. Saved from our sins, saved from the wrath of you, a holy God, against our sins, made right because of the perfect sacrifice of Jesus in our place and for our sins, risen again from the dead, that through faith, by grace, we could know you both now and forever. So Father, I pray, speak to us now in this time. Holy Spirit, come, and I pray that you would be our teacher in this time. Lead us in the way that you desire for us to go. I thank you, Father, that you have met with me in the preparation of this message. And I pray now that you would meet with us in the proclamation of this message. That you would be glorified in Jesus' name. Amen. 
All right, let's begin reading Ruth chapter 1, starting at verse 1. Four realities of the Redeemer, from which then flow three responses from the redeemed. Ruth chapter 1, starting at verse 1. In the days when the judges ruled, there was a famine in the land, and a man of Bethlehem and Judah went to sojourn in the country of Moab, he and his wife and his two sons. The name of the man was Elimelech, and the name of his wife, Naomi, and the names of his two sons were Malon and Kilion. They were Ephrathites from Bethlehem in Judah. They went into the country of Moab and remained there. But Elimelech, the husband of Naomi, died, and she was left with her two sons. These took Moabite wives. The name of the one was Orpah, and the name of the other, Ruth. They lived there about ten years, and both Malon and Kilion died, so that the woman was left without her two sons and her husband. And so, just a little bit of context here as we dive into this story. The story of Ruth is happening during the Old Testament time of the judges. And those were dark and evil days within the life of the nation of Israel. In fact, over the four centuries that span the book of Judges, that entire time is summed up by one of the last sentences in the book of Judges, which is right before Ruth chapter 1. Judges 21 verse 25 says this, In those days, there was no king in Israel. Everyone did what was right in his own eyes. So everyone is going their own way. They are doing their own thing. This is a very dark and spiritually destitute time within the life of the nation of Israel. But even in the midst of that darkness shines at least one bright light. And that's where the story of Ruth now begins to come in. The story starts with a man named Elimelech, and he is married to a woman named Naomi, and they have two sons whose names are Malon and Kilion. Interestingly, Elimelech's name, the dad's name, means, my God is king, and he is about to leave Bethlehem, and the name Bethlehem means the house of bread. And so Malon is, or sorry, uh, Elimelech is about to leave Bethlehem because there's a famine within Israel. So get this now. There is no bread within the house of bread. And my God, the king, doesn't quite trust in his God, the king, enough to stay where he is and wait for God to provide. And so he picks up his wife and kids, and they move to Moab, and his two boys grow up, and they marry Moabite women. Malon marries a girl named Ruth, and Kilion marries a girl named Orpah. But while they're in Moab, Elimelech, the dad, he dies, and Naomi becomes a widow. And then sometime later, Malon and Kilion, the two boys, they die as well, and Ruth and Orpah are now widows also. So, Naomi has lost her husband and both of her sons during the ten years that they live in Moab, and though she sees the hand of God directing all of her circumstances, she still becomes an intensely bitter woman. Now, somewhere along the way, these three women, Ruth, Naomi, and Orpah, discover that there's food in Israel again, and so they start to make their way back. Notice chapter 1 and verse 6. Then she arose with her daughters-in-law to return from the country of Moab, for she had heard in the fields of Moab that the Lord had visited his people and given them food. So she set out from the place where she was with her two daughters-in-law, and they went on the way to return to the land of Judah. But Naomi said to her two daughters-in-law, Go, return each of you to her mother's house. May the Lord deal kindly with you, as you have dealt with the dead and with me. The Lord grant that you may find rest, each of you, in the house of her husband. Then she kissed them, and they lifted up their voices and wept. And they said to her, No, we will return with you to your people. 
But Naomi said, turn back, my daughters. Why will you go with me? Have I yet sons in my womb that they may become your husbands? Turn back, my daughters. Go your way, for I am too old to have a husband. If I should say I have hope, even if I should have a husband this night and should bear sons, would you therefore wait till they were grown? Would you therefore refrain from marrying? No, my daughters, for it is exceedingly bitter for me, to me, for your sake, that the hand of the Lord has gone out against me. Then they lifted up their voices and wept again, and Orpah kissed her mother-in-law, but Ruth clung to her. And she said, See, your sister-in-law has gone back to her people and to her gods. Return after your sister-in-law. So Ruth and Orpah, the daughters-in-law, they are leaving their home country in Moab to go back to Naomi's home country in Israel. And Naomi says to them, notice again at the start of verse 9, she says, The Lord grant that you may find rest, each of you in the house of her husband. So that word rest in verse 9 means to have safe shelter. The position of unmarried women in that ancient culture was unstable at best because the one place where they found safety and security was under the shelter of their husband. So that's why Naomi is encouraging them now to stay in Moab and get remarried because if they return to Israel with Naomi, it looks like there is no future for them, nor is there any guarantee of their safety. So if they go back with her at this point, they could very well die in this land. So when these ladies are faced with this ultimate decision, Orpah decides that she is staying in Moab. So she gives Naomi a hug and a kiss and they cry. And then Orpah turns around and she walks away right back into the heart of Moab. But verse 14 says that Ruth clung to Naomi. And notice what she says now in verse 16. But Ruth said, Do not urge me to leave you or to return from following you. For where you go, I will go. And where you lodge, I will lodge. Your people shall be my people and your God, my God. Where you die, I will die. And there I will be buried. May the Lord do so to me and more also if anything but death parts me from you. And when Naomi saw that she was determined to go with her, she said no more. And this right here is Ruth's conversion. Like, this is the language of conversion. This is the language of the covenant. Ruth is saying to her, I am no longer who I once was. I'm not the same person that I used to be. Like, notice here in this moment, Ruth is faced with this life-changing decision. She knew that she would have to give up the only life that she had ever known up to this particular point. And not only that, she was also willing to embrace the prospect of suffering, not just because of her commitment to Naomi, but more so because of her commitment to Naomi's God, who just moments before has now also become her God as well. Verse 19. So the two of them went on until they came to Bethlehem, and when they came to Bethlehem, the whole town was stirred because of them. And the women said, Is this Naomi? She said to them, Do not call me Naomi. Call me Mara, which means bitter. For the Almighty has dealt very bitterly with me. I went away full, and the Lord has brought me back empty. Why call me Naomi when the Lord has testified against me, and the Almighty has brought calamity upon me? So Naomi returned, and Ruth the Moabite, her daughter-in-law with her, who returned from the country of Moab, and they came to Bethlehem at the beginning of barley harvest. Now, you do not have to be a super intelligent Bible scholar to notice here that Naomi is suffering greatly. Like she is in deep pain at this moment. On the one hand, she is lost in the darkness of her own adversity. And yet on the other hand, she realizes that God is still in control even in the midst of her adversity, which I think serves to teach us a really important lesson here. Everything in our life is understood rightly 
only when it's understood in relation to God. Everything in our life is understood rightly only when it's understood in relation to God. Stacy and I have uh, had the blessing of adopting all three of our children. And um, even as we were getting married, we always had our hearts set on adoption at some point. We just never thought it would happen the way that it did or as quickly as it did. We weren't really married that long when um, it was made clear to us by our doctor that we would not be able to have our own biological children. And, and I remember that day with some clarity. I remember leaving the doctor's office that day and getting into the car with Stacy and that long, quiet car ride home. And when we got home, the tears that would follow and the confusion and the wondering and all of the questions that would come with it, it was like, God, why? Like, why is this happening? Like, you've given us this desire to have children, and your word tells us that having children is a good thing, it's a noble thing, it's something that we should desire, and so why are you withholding something from us that seems so good? And, and all of these questions that we were trying to sort through. But then a short time later, we began a process to adopt a little girl from China, and we had no idea where she would be. We had no idea who she would be. When we began the process, she wasn't even born yet. But then we found ourselves one July day in 2005 standing in a hotel conference room in the Nanchang province of China, and we held our 10-month-old baby girl in our arms for the very first time. A few years later, um, sensing that God was not done with us in this area quite yet, we went through the whole process again, this time in Canada, and we got to the very end of the process, and after a couple of false starts with our caseworker, she called us one day asking us if we'd be open to adopting biological brothers. And, and we were like, two for the price of one. Are you kidding me? Like, <laughs> like let's do this. Like, we know a deal when we see it. So, and then, and then one day we, we walk into the social services building in the city where we lived, and there was this open space, and right in the middle there's this glass-walled room, glass walls on every side. And, and Stacy and I walk up to one of these glass walls, and we look inside the room, and there, like right in the middle of the room are these two little boys, ages two and three at the time, sitting on the floor, playing with their trucks and their trains. And Stacy and I are standing on the other side of the glass, and we're like, this is it. Like, this is our family. And now, all these years later, we look back on all of that, and we cannot even begin to imagine our family without our three children. We have no idea what life would be like or how different it would be. Now, I'm certainly not saying that all of our experiences turn out like that, nor am I saying that all of your experiences will turn out like ours. But the lesson that we learned is that even though the pain and the confusion are real in the moment, God is still supernaturally weaving together a greater purpose that you and I do not yet see. Everything in our life is understood rightly only when it's understood in relation to God. That's a little bit of where Ruth and Naomi are right now. They're in great pain. They have great confusion. They have all these questions. They don't see the good yet that will come from the pain that they're in in that moment, but they're starting to see glimpses of it as we get into the beginning of chapter 2. Notice chapter 2 in verse 1. Now Naomi had a relative of her husband's, a worthy man of the clan of Elimelech, whose name was Boaz. So now a guy named Boaz enters the picture, and we learn two things about Boaz from chapter 2 and verse 1. The first thing that we learn is that he is from the clan of Elimelech. 
So he's from the clan of Naomi's deceased husband. In other words, Boaz is their relative. That's an important detail that we're going to come back to a little bit later. But then we also learn a second important point, and we learn here that Boaz is a worthy man. And that could mean at least one of two things. It could mean that Boaz was wealthy and he had the resources to redeem them. It could also mean that Boaz was very well respected among the people within his community. In the case of Boaz, it probably means both of those things. So Boaz now is in the picture. Notice chapter 2 and verse 2. And Ruth the Moabite said to Naomi, Let me go to the field and glean among the ears of grain after him, in whose sight I shall find favor. And she said to her, Go, my daughter. So she set out and went and gleaned in the field after the reapers. And she happened to come to the part of the field belonging to Boaz, who was of the clan of Elimelech. And, Boaz, and behold, Boaz came from Bethlehem, and he said to the reapers, The Lord be with you. And they answered, The Lord bless you. Then Boaz said to his young man who was in charge of the reapers, Whose young woman is this? And so the love story begins. The love connection is made. That last phrase at the end of verse 5 where Boaz says, Whose young woman is this? Maybe kind of translates from the original language to our language into something like, Check her out. <laughs> like, ooh la la, look at her, right? And, and this now brings us to the first reality of the Redeemer. The first reality of who the Redeemer is and what the Redeemer does. You may want to jot this down. Number one, the Redeemer pursues the poor because of his kindness. The Redeemer pursues the poor because of his kindness. Now, things have become so bad for Ruth and Naomi that Ruth pleads with Naomi to let her go into the grain fields and get what she can. And there was this Old Testament law that goes all the way back to Leviticus 23 that made provision for people in circumstances like Ruth's and Naomi's. And verse 3, she just so happened to be in the field of Boaz who notices her and pursues her and starts now to take care of her. So Boaz pursues Ruth and realizes how poor she is, which leads us then to the second reality of the Redeemer. Not only does the Redeemer pursue the poor because of his kindness, but the Redeemer protects the helpless because of his compassion. The Redeemer protects the helpless because of his compassion. Notice chapter 2 and verse 8. Then Boaz said to Ruth, Now listen, my daughter, do not go to glean in another field or leave this one, but keep close to my young women. Let your eyes be on the field that they are reaping and go after them. Have I not charged the young men not to touch you? And when you are thirsty, go to the vessels and drink what the young men have drawn. So Boaz not only pursues her, but now he is protecting her. Tells her to stay in his field where he knows that she's going to be safe and he's arranged for her safety and for her well-being. The problem, though, was that Ruth was a Moabite. And this is a detail that the author keeps coming back to a number of times throughout the story. Ruth was from Moab, and because Moab was the sworn enemy of Israel, the Moabites, as a people, began because of an incestuous relationship that Lot had with one of his daughters all the way back in the book of Genesis. Not a great way to start a nation. Skip ahead to the Old Testament book of Numbers, Numbers chapter 25, and a huge group of Moabite women seduce a bunch of Israelite men, and they all get married, and the Israelites end up worshiping the false gods of these Moabite women, which ultimately brings the judgment of God down upon these Israelite men, and in one swoop, 24,000 Israelite men die at the hand of the judgment of God because they have been seduced by these Moabite women and they end up worshiping all of these false gods. Like an Israelite guy knew by this point, you do not go looking for a Moabite woman. 
But from the very beginning of the story, don't forget that Elimelech, the dad, picks up his whole family and they move right into the heart of Moab where his two sons marry Moabite women. And now one of them has come back to Israel and they know that Ruth is a Moabite and they know that the Moabites are the enemy and they know that Ruth is helpless. And so now Boaz steps in, risking reputation, risking everything. He steps in, and he is not only pursuing Ruth, but he is also protecting Ruth because of his compassion toward her. And that compassion then leads to this exchange, starting in chapter 2 and verse 10. Then she fell on her face, bowing to the ground, and said to him, Why have I found favor in your eyes that you should take notice of me, since I am a foreigner? But Boaz answered her, All that you have done for your mother-in-law since the death of your husband has been fully told to me, and how you left your father and mother and your native land and came to a people that you did not know before. The Lord repay you for what you have done, and a full reward be given you by the Lord, the God of Israel, under whose wings you have come to take refuge. Then she said, I have found favor in your eyes, my Lord, for you have comforted me and spoken kindly to your servant, though I am not one of your servants. Ruth is basically saying, I'm lower on the ladder than every single one of your servants, and yet you are showing me this kindness and this favor that I have done nothing to deserve, which leads us now to the third reality of the Redeemer. The Redeemer provides for the needy because of his abundance. Look at what happens next. Chapter 2, verse 14. And at mealtime, Boaz came to her. Come here and eat some bread and dip your morsel in the wine. So she sat beside the reapers, and he passed, her, passed to her roasted grain, and she ate until she was satisfied, and she had some left over. So just imagine, here's Ruth sitting at this big banquet table with all of these other workers, and she's eating and eating and eating to the point where she's full, and then she's stuffing her pockets with all the leftovers she's going to take home later. Verse 15, when she rose to glean, Boaz instructed his young men, saying, let her glean even among the sheaves, and do not reproach her. And also pull out some from the bundles for her and leave it for her to glean and do not rebuke her. So she gleaned in the field until evening. Then she beat out what she had gleaned and it was about an ephah of barley. So Boaz is basically giving Ruth everything that she needs at this point. And when the evening is over, Ruth has an ephah of barley. Now the average amount of barley that a person would take away from an average day's work was about one to two pounds of barley. Here, Some scholars estimate that Ruth was walking away with somewhere upwards of 30 pounds of barley, maybe even upwards of 50 pounds of barley. And Boaz just gives all of it to her out of his abundance. And then notice verse 18. And she took it up and went into the city. So just just try and picture this, okay? I don't know what image you get in your mind when you think of Ruth from the Old Testament, One of the images that comes to my mind is of this small, petite woman who's kind of meek and mild-mannered, pretty quiet, doesn't really speak unless she's spoken to, that kind of thing. But here, I mean, you read chapter 2 and verse 18, and I am like convinced that Ruth was the first ancient female bodybuilder ever because she's got like 50 pounds of barley and she's just hoofing it home all by herself. Like this is an accomplishment for sure. Verse 18, and she took it up and went into the city. Her mother-in-law saw what she had gleaned. She also brought out and gave her what food she had left over after being satisfied. So now Ruth is just emptying all of her pockets from dinner and giving it all to Naomi. And verse 19, and her mother-in-law said to her, where did you glean today? And where have you worked? Blessed be the man who took notice of you. So she told her mother-in-law with whom she had worked and said, the man's name with whom I worked today is Boaz. 
Now, again, this is one of the beautiful things about Old Testament narrative stories. Like, this is one of the places where the author just pulls on this thread of suspense from the very beginning through the narrative. So just try to picture in your mind right now the look on Naomi's face as Ruth begins to unpack all the details of her day. Because we know that Boaz is the one who is taking care of them. And we know who Boaz is and what he is doing. But Naomi does not yet know that it's Boaz. And Ruth does not yet know why it matters so much that Boaz is the one who's doing all of this. And so the author just makes this moment last as long as possible. And Ruth then looks to Naomi and she says, The man's name with whom I worked today is... Boaz! It's Boaz! Boaz. And and now Naomi starts to connect all of the dots. And all of a sudden, Naomi, this woman whom to this point in the story, her name was bitter. She now does a complete turnaround. Notice chapter two in verse 20. And Naomi said to her daughter-in-law, may he be blessed by the Lord whose kindness has not forsaken the living or the dead. Naomi also said to her, the man is a close relative of ours, one of our redeemers. And so this now is turning the whole story in a brand new direction, which leads us to the fourth reality of the Redeemer. Not only does the Redeemer pursue the poor because of his kindness and protect the helpless because of his compassion and provide for the needy because of his abundance, but the Redeemer purchases his people because of his love. The Redeemer purchases his people because of his love. Now, you need to see at this point that Naomi has completely turned the corner here. Like, she is back in the game, baby. And she is planning a way to get the help that she needs from the only one who's able to give it to them. And so she turns to Ruth in chapter 3 and verse 1. Then Naomi, her mother-in-law, said to her, My daughter, should I not seek rest for you, that it may be well with you? Is not Boaz a relative with whose young women you were? See, he is, he is winnowing barley tonight at the threshing floor. Skip down to verse 6. So she went down to the threshing floor and did just as her mother-in-law had commanded her. And when Boaz had eaten and drunk and his heart was merry, he went to lie down at the end of the heap of grain. Then she came softly and uncovered his feet and lay down. At midnight the man was startled and turned over, and behold, a woman lay at his feet. He said, Who are you? And she answered, I am Ruth, your servant. Spread your wings over your servant, for you are a redeemer. And here it is, Ruth proposes to Boaz. Like, she proposes to him. Like, how romantic is that, right? Like, guys, ladies, how many of you remember that one special night when everything was perfect and just the way that it should be and you got down on one knee and you looked up into the eyes of the one that you love so much and you said to them, spread your wings over me for you are a redeemer. Anyone? No? No, different time, different custom. All God's people said, amen. Thank you, God. Chapter 3, verse 10. And he said, May you be blessed by the Lord, my daughter. You have made this last kindness greater than the first, in that you have not gone after young men, whether poor or rich. And now, my daughter, do not fear. I will do for you all that you ask, for all my fellow townsmen know that you are a worthy woman. And now it is true that I am a redeemer, yet there is a redeemer nearer than I. 
Remain tonight, and in the morning, if he will redeem you, good, let him do it. But if he is not willing to redeem you, then as the Lord lives, I will redeem you. Lie down until the morning. So we read this, and all of a sudden now, there is this huge problem. Because we've invested ourselves into the story up to this point, and we want Boaz. We are cheering for Boaz. We want him to be the one. He's one of the good guys. We want him to be the one who's going to sweep in and redeem Ruth and Naomi and turn all of this tragedy that they've experienced up to this point into unbelievable triumph. And, and he says to Ruth, I'll do everything that I can to make this happen, but it turns out that there's at least one other guy, one other redeemer who's closer to you than I am. In other words, this other guy has the first shot at redeeming you. See, in order for a man to redeem anyone, he had to have at least three things in place. First, he had to have the right to redeem. And what gave him the right was that he, was, he had to be the closest living relative. He had to be the closest living relative to have the right to redeem. So he had to have the right to redeem, but he also had to have the power to redeem. That is, he had to have the resources and the money. He had to have the ability to pay the debts of those whom he was rescuing. And then third, he had to have the will to redeem. In other words, he had to want to do it. So the Redeemer had to have the right, the power, and the will to redeem. All of those three things had to be in place in order for the Redeemer to be the Redeemer. And so, at the beginning of chapter 4, Boaz searches out this other man who could redeem Ruth and Naomi, and he lays out the entire situation before this guy, and the guy says, yeah, sure, I'll do it, I'll redeem the situation. And we read that, and we are like, no, like this can't be, right? Because we want Boaz to be the one who's going to do this, and so we're thinking to ourselves, come on, Boaz, you got to step in, you got to do something, you got you to make this different. And so then, all of a sudden, Boaz throws this guy a curveball, and take a look at chapter 4 and verse 5. Then Boaz said, The day you buy the field from the hand of Naomi, you also acquire Ruth, the Moabite, the widow of the dead, in order to perpetuate the name of the dead in his inheritance. Then the Redeemer said, I cannot redeem it for myself, lest I impair my own inheritance. Take my right of redemption yourself, for I cannot redeem it. So this guy hears that Ruth comes with the deal, and he says, no, I can't do it, and primarily because Ruth is a Moabite. So remember, Ruth is from the people who are the enemies of Israel. So by her very nature, she was excluded from the fellowship of God and from the blessings of the covenant that God would give to his people. And so this guy says, yeah, you know what? On second thought, now that I think of it, I don't think I can do this. Why don't you take all of my rights of redemption for yourself? And in that one plot twist at the very last minute when it looks like everything was lost, Boaz sweeps in and he redeems Ruth and Naomi. And what at first had been unexplainable tragedy has in a single moment turned into unbelievable triumph. The Redeemer has purchased his people because he loves them. But that's not all. Look at how all of this ends. Chapter 4, verse 13. So Boaz took Ruth and she became his wife, and he went into her, and the Lord gave her conception, and she bore a son. Then the woman said to Naomi, Blessed be the Lord who has not left you this day without a redeemer, and may his name be renowned in Israel. He shall be to you a restorer of life and a nourisher of your old age. For your daughter-in-law who loves you, who is more to you than seven sons, has given birth to him. 
Then Naomi took the child and laid him on her lap and became his nurse. And the, woman, the women of the neighborhood uh, gave him a name, saying, A son has been born to Naomi. They named him Obed. He was the father of Jesse, the father of David. And so here now, it all comes together. They are celebrating because God has given them a redeemer, and this redeemer has brought them great joy. In fact, there is so much joy that Naomi takes this child and cares for him, and all the women who knew of Naomi's grief at the beginning of the story now celebrate with her and say, a son has been given to Naomi. And we're like, whoa, wait a minute. Naomi didn't give birth to the son. Ruth gave birth to the son. So why are they saying that Naomi has given birth to a son, that a son has been born to Naomi? They're saying it because back in chapter 1 and verse 21, Naomi was convinced that the Lord had brought her back to Bethlehem empty-handed, and it caused her great bitterness. But now, here she is on the other end of this story, and God has filled her back up, and he has replaced that deep bitterness with abiding joy. And it's all because of the work of the Redeemer. Ruth gives birth to a boy named Obed. Obed has a son named Jesse. Jesse has a son named David. And from the line of David would come the one true and ultimate redeemer in Jesus Christ. Now, follow me here on this, okay? Boaz is a type of Christ. Boaz is a type of Christ. In other words, Boaz is an example to us of something that Christ is for us. Boaz is an example to us of something that Christ is for us. So Boaz looks upon this Gentile named Ruth, and he shows her generous favor that she has done nothing to deserve. And in marriage, he takes her in as his own and shows her great love. And in a much greater way, Jesus Christ has looked upon us and he has not simply redeemed us to meet an earthly requirement like that of Elimelech, but he has made us his bride so that we can share with him in his life, in his home, in his wealth, and in his joy, both now and forevermore. Jesus Christ is the ultimate redeemer because in a way much greater than Boaz ever could, Jesus has the right to redeem us. He is our relative, you could say, in the sense that he is fully human. In one sense, he lived as we did, but in another sense, he lived the life that we could never live. And while he has the right to redeem us, Jesus also has the power to redeem us. Because even while he is fully human, he is also fully divine. He is God, and he is without sin. And in his death and in his resurrection, he proves that he alone has power over sin and death forever. So he has the right to redeem us, he has the power to redeem us, but what makes Jesus different from all of these other potential human redeemers is that Jesus has the will to redeem us because he voluntarily left his throne of glory in heaven and came to earth to live a perfect life and to die a perfect death and to conquer a powerful enemy so that all of us in our poor and helpless and needy and lost condition could be pursued and protected and provided for and purchased by the one true redeemer. And so there at the cross and in the empty tomb, God has turned that one moment that looked like unexplainable tragedy into what has become our unbelievable triumph. And so those four realities of who the Redeemer is and what the Redeemer does must flow then into three responses from us as the redeemed. 
So three responses that we learn here from the story of Ruth. Here's number one. See his sovereignty in every season. See his sovereignty in every season. This entire story and our entire lives are laced with the sovereignty of God. Even in the midst of what looks like unspeakable tragedy at the very beginning of this book, we see God's sovereignty bringing all of the details together. I mean, just think about this with me for a minute. Is it any accident that God just so happened to bring Naomi and Ruth to Bethlehem at the beginning of the barley harvest? And is it any accident that God just so happened to lead Ruth to the part of the field belonging to the man with whom she worked, whose name was Boaz? And is it any accident that Boaz just so happens to be a worthy man of the clan of Elimelech? And is it any accident that Boaz just so happens to be one of their redeemers? And is it any accident that the other redeemer, who could have turned the story in a completely different direction, just so happens to say no at the last minute so that Boaz can rightfully step in and redeem Ruth and Naomi? And is it any accident that Ruth, after 10 years of not being able to have children with her first husband, just so happens to give birth to Obed, and that centuries later, this Gentile woman from Moab, the people who are the enemies of Israel, would end up in the genealogy of Jesus Christ, our great Redeemer? Are any of those things accidents? No, none of those things are accidents. None of those things are just so happened. All of those things are just so God. Like God was in control of every single detail right from the very beginning. So friends, take heart. Take heart because no matter what suffering, no matter what pain, no matter what grief or confusion or despair that you may be going through right now, God has already written your story. He has already written your story and he has written it in a way that will show you his glory and his goodness in ways that you may never otherwise see had, it, had he not led you through this season of suffering. I mean, just consider this. Naomi had no way of knowing how it would all end when she was back at the very beginning. And Ruth had no way of knowing how it would all end when she was back at the very beginning. And you and I have no way of knowing how it's all going to end when we are right in the middle of it. We have no way of knowing how the death of a loved one or the pain of a miscarriage or the disease of a family member or the deformity of a child or the fear of a future that we can't control or the news that you'll never have your own kids. We have no way of knowing right now how it's all going to come together later. But what we do know is that God has written the story. And the chapter that you happen to be in right now is most certainly preparing you for a chapter already written by God but not yet known to you. And even though you don't quite know how this story is going to come together, what you do know is that you have a great redeemer who knows every part of your story and he walks with you every single step of the way. So see, see the good news is that when you see his sovereignty in every season of your life, you can then lose your life out of love for him. That's the second response of the redeemed. Lose your life out of love for him. Back to chapter one. In verse 16, Ruth and Orpah, the two daughters-in-law, they're at the crossroads. Two daughters-in-law faced with the same decision. 
Orpah chooses to go back to her old life. And notice again, chapter 1 and verse 16. But Ruth said, she's talking to Naomi, Do not urge me to leave you or to return from following you, for where you go, I will go, and where you lodge, I will lodge. Your people shall be my people, and your God, my God. Where you die, I will die, and there I will be buried. May the Lord do so to me, and more also, if anything but death parts me from you. Now take a second here and put yourself in Ruth's moccasins. She sees her sister-in-law walking off into the sunset, right back into the heart of Moab. She sees her sister-in-law going back to a life that she is comfortable with, going back to a life of safety, back to a life of security, back to a life that will ultimately lead her to worship false gods. And Ruth now turns to Naomi and she says, no, I am not doing that. I am not going back to that life. I am not going back to my old life and all that it represents and all that it tried to give me. Instead, she looks at Naomi and she says, your God is my God. Where you go, I will go. Like, just think of the implications of a decision like that, not just for Ruth, but for you and me right now. Think of the implications, what this means for us, what it meant for Ruth. Like Ruth is choosing to leave her family and familiar surroundings behind. She is choosing what looks to be, at this point, life as a widow who will never have children. She is choosing to go to an unknown land with new people, new customs, and a new language. She is choosing to die in this place. Chapter 1, verse 17, she says, Where you die, I will die, and there I will be buried. Like she is turning her back on Moab, never to go back there again. And over all of that, she is giving her life completely and totally to God because God has given a redeemer to her. That, friends, is the nature of true conversion. That is the nature of true conversion. True conversion is not saying, I'll keep a little bit of Moab and I'll take a little bit of Israel. True conversion is not saying, I'll keep a little bit of the old and I'll take a little bit of the new. True conversion is that when you and I have truly encountered the one true and living God and we realize who he is in all of his holiness and his purity and his justice and his righteousness, when we realize who this one true and living God is and everything that he has done for us, that we repent of our sins and we willingly lay down our entire life in service to him. So let me ask you, if you turned your back on, on all the false gods of your old life, Have you died to the old way of life, never to return to it again? Have you said, God, here's my life. I'll do what you want me to do. I will go where you want me to go, God. I will go into my home, into my workplace, into my neighborhood, into my dorm, into my classroom with my friends, with my peers. I will go to a mission field somewhere among the almost 4 billion people spread across the globe who have never even heard yet the name of Jesus Christ. God, I will walk away from the safety, I will walk away from the security, I will walk away from the comfort if it means going to the places where you want me to go, and I will risk it all because following after you is far greater than anything that this world will ever be able to give me. See, when you see his sovereignty over every season of your life, and when you lose your life out of love for him, then and only then, will you find real rest 
in your Redeemer. And that's the third response of the redeemed. Find real rest in your Redeemer. From the very beginning of this story, Naomi's desire was for her daughters-in-law to find rest. To find that safe shelter under the protection of the one who could take care of them. And now we get to the end of the story and Boaz, their redeemer, has saved them. And there is great joy in the household of Ruth and Boaz. There is great joy within the heart of Naomi because they have found real rest because the work of the Redeemer is finished and has been applied to their life. And friends, this is the only place where you and I will find real rest and real joy in our lives. It is not until we look to the finished work of our Redeemer, Jesus Christ, that we will know and experience the safe shelter that he died and rose again to secure for us. So if you're here today and you do not know Jesus Christ as your Redeemer in the ways that we have spoken of him this morning, then we invite you to turn away from your sins to turn away from the things of this world that continue to disappoint, to to turn away from your Moab and believe in Jesus Christ for the forgiveness of your sins. And then and only then will you find the safety and the security and the shelter that your soul truly longs for. And only then will you know that there is a Redeemer and he gave his life 